0: G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. The thoughts and opinions shared in this podcast are just that. It's up to the listener to decide what is true and what is not true. This podcast contains coarse language, references to violence, sexual abuse, and murder, and may not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised. Previously, on Who Killed Leanne Holland. <laughs>
2: Commissioner Atkinson disputed the maggot evidence had been planted, stating there was a very senior police officer present when the maggot was found in the boot of Graham Stefford's car.
1: The forensic review found Leanne Holland had applied peroxide bleach to a
3: hair but had not been able to fully spread the bleach through a hair before the process inexplicably
1: ceased. The scientists didn't say that at all. They said that the process of peroxiding had at some point been stopped but that they couldn't even identify exactly when Leanne had peroxided her hair and they
2: certainly couldn't identify that it occurred on the day that she was murdered.
3: The police decided to conduct a review into their original murder investigation. Now that review has been returned and it has uncovered new evidence, a number of new witnesses and forensic evidence that police say is consistent with the original case that Graham Stafford was guilty of the murder of Leanne Holland.
2: And the, the preliminary test is luminol and that's, um test's got some problems with it. You need to always do a subsequent test to check whether the, uh, it detects as blood is actually blood. And in fact, when you looked at the the report itself, it turned out the scientists couldn't tell whether these 60 spots were blood or
1: not. Uh, So, you know, that evidence wasn't particularly persuasive. Basically, the questions revolved around where was my car, which seemed
2: rather bizarre because they would have a better knowledge of where it went after um, I was locked up.
0: A 610 Media Production. This is Who Killed Leanne Holland. Chapter 14 Forensic Flaws. G'day, my name is Jamie Pulse, and as you heard from my co host Graham Crowley, last chapter I was recovering from a sinus surgery. It was planned surgery for a chronic post nasal drip. much information sorry about that but anyway everything is going well now and I got COVID tested and I'm all good hopefully you don't have COVID and hopefully you're staying safe look out for each other and make sure you don't sneeze on anyone firstly thank you to everyone who has contributed to us via the ACA supporter app whether you gave 50 cents five dollars or twenty dollars it's very much appreciated it goes a long way to help us so thank you once again and also a shout out to Graham Crowley, who is somewhere in the red dirt, traveling Queensland in his caravan with his wife and his little dog Baxter. So I hope you're listening somewhere there, Graham, and uh, have a good one. All right, so some feedback. This is some stuff from Facebook. Like I said before, if you want to send some feedback, please by all means do it. You can email us, you can message us. We might not get back to you straight away, but we will read your comments and we eventually do endeavor to get back to people. But there is quite a lengthy process there. This one is from Linda P Hartley. I'm just totally flabbergasted a public servant would stand and vouch for a career criminal and the audacity to victim blame. Devalue a person's worth even more than the sperm donor she had to call dad had already done. To then hear someone who is meant to serve and protect our community advocate for the perpetrator. What an absolute joke and a disgusting waste of taxpayers money. He should be tried and hung right alongside pedophile Pete for enabling. Gosh, my blood is boiling. This one is from Jess Mudge or Mudgey. Sorry if I'm getting that wrong. Wow, a very hard episode to listen to, but it needed to be shared. What an absolute disgusting creature Pedo Pete is. Thank you, Jamie and Graham, for your tireless efforts in bringing justice to poor Leanne. RIP, young lady. It's also important to note that we did extend our invitation to Pete to come on the podcast and have his word, which he declined. Jules Zickman. Hey guys, after listening to this, it's frightening and disgusting that Channel 7 interviewed Pedo the way he was interviewed and portrayed compared to Graham is inconceivable. Channel 7 should remove that episode from 7+. How do we get the ball rolling on that? This one's from Megan Peel. That was a harrowing listen, guys, to hear how that monster has brutalised generations of women and for some reason seems to be protected by police. I feel you may be only scratching the surface here. Who owned the white ambulance? What was really going on behind the scenes with Pete and police? Great job as always, guys. That's a good question. Uh, We have been told by a few people the first name of the person who owned the ambulance. We will let you know when we have any further information, but at this time we can't clarify or substantiate those claims. It was quite a few years ago now. As you're aware, if you're a true crime fan, you would have heard of the Golden State Killer or the original Night Stalker. And after 40 years, in August 2018, that man was arrested, an ex-cop. So, Graham and I read the profile the criminologist had worked up for the Golden State Killer, which was contained on a Wikipedia page, and it was very accurate. So, thanks again to criminologist Ann McMahon for her hard work in profiling the killer of Leanne Holland for us. I'm also aware that Ann McMahon is working on her own podcast at the moment in relation to stalking victims, and it's going to be called Stalking Australia, so keep your eye out for that. It's also worth mentioning that the 23rd and 24th of September 2020 will be the 29th anniversary of Leanne Holland's murder. So maybe it's time to summarise some of the things we've learnt. So from 1991 to 2020, what a journey it's been. So let's just have a quick recap. In September 91, Leanne Holland was murdered. Graham Stafford was arrested. In October 91, Julianne Lowe was murdered. Just a kilometre away. In 92... Graham Stafford was convicted of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. In 92, an appeal to the Court of Appeal was refused. In 93, an appeal to the High Court of Australia was refused. In 96, appeal to the Queensland Governor. In 97, appeal to the Court of Appeal also refused. In 98, appeal to the High Court of Australia refused. In 2005, the book Who Killed Leanne Holland was published. In 2006, Graham Stafford released from prison on parole. In 2006, an appeal to the Queensland Governor. In 2007, ABC's Australian Story did a two-part series on the matter. In 2009, his conviction was quashed and a retrial ordered. In 2010, Australian Story aired another program on the story. Also in 2010, the Queensland Government announced they will not retry Graham Stafford and a review was announced by Queensland Police. In 2012, the review was complete. Queensland Police refused to disclose the outcome of the review. In 2012, the results were leaked to a journalist, Graham Stafford found to be the killer. Also in 2012, Queensland Police then hold a media conference. In 2013, an application for a review report refused by the Queensland Police Service. In 2016, an application for release of the report to QCAT. In 2016, the report was leaked to Channel 7. In 2017, Channel 7 documentary Murder Uncovered and a podcast, Little Girl Lost. In 2019, QCAT orders Queensland Police to release the report. Queensland Police appeal that. In 2019, in the Supreme Court of Queensland, police withdraw their objection to release the report. In 2020, Queensland Police submit new grounds for objection to release the report. And also in 2020, as you know, this podcast, Who Killed Leanne Holland, is published. The original police brief of evidence against Graham Stafford and what was presented to the jury at his trial was variously described by judges as a strong forensic and circumstantial case. That is, until it was which resulted in his conviction being quashed. You heard in the last chapter that Queensland police have found further forensic evidence which concludes Graham Stafford is the offender. On the surface, it would appear that Queensland police again has a strong forensic and circumstantial case against Graham Stafford. However, after a brief scan of the full report, Barrister Joe Crowley, already disputes the strong forensic case. But as you have heard, unlike the original brief of evidence, no one has been given the opportunity to fully study the contents of the report and confirm that it is in fact accurate and conclusive. And that is problematic. There are lots of question marks hanging over the accuracy of their forensic evidence by a lot of people who should know. So we decided to explore how strong forensic evidence is and isn't. The problems for and against forensic evidence. And this is necessary because as it currently stands, Graham Stafford will never have an opportunity to test the evidence against him in a court of law or anywhere else for that matter. So just so we're on the same page, forensic evidence is evidence such as fingerprints, footprints, hairs, fibres, blood, and other body fluids, knives, bullets, guns, paint. Even soil can link a suspect to the scene. The most well-known forensic evidence is, of course, fingerprints and DNA there is an assumption or expectation in the community that because it's forensic, it must be accurate and therefore reliable and therefore safe to assume guilt or innocence based on that forensic evidence, as that happened to Graham Stafford in 92. However, this is very far from the truth and it's not always accurate. And it's important again to point out that all the evidence against Graham Stafford in this matter is either forensic or circumstantial. There is no direct evidence, meaning there's no witnesses, there's no admissions and there's no motive. There was a limited window of opportunity So what could possibly go wrong? And it is well established that there were significant problems with the forensic evidence and gathering of same at the time of the original police investigation. So Robin Napper is a former detective superintendent of police in the UK who investigated over 200 murders and is now an independent forensic investigator based in Perth, Western Australia. Mr. Napper currently lectures at conferences, both nationally and internationally, on forensically driven policing. This incorporates police procedures at crime scenes and how to maximise forensic intelligence and criminal investigation strategies. In 2009, Mr Napper was asked to review the forensic evidence of the original police investigation of the Leanne Holland murder. He wrote a scathing 13-page report detailing the problems with the forensic evidence and the collection of same of the original Holland murder investigation. His full report can be found on the website whokilledleanneholland.com and in 2019, Liam Mannix, science reporter for The Age and Sydney Morning Herald, wrote an article styled, CSI Not So Scientific, Doubt Cast on Veracity of Forensic Evidence. Here are some comments from that article, read by a voice actor.
3: The use of forensic evidence, such as firearms analysts, hair comparisons and some DNA samples presented in criminal cases is sometimes flawed and unscientific and likely to lead to the conviction of innocent people, experts say. Researchers have expressed serious concerns about the state of forensic science in Australia and the reliability of materials presented as evidence in court. Five major forensic science techniques either do not work or have no strong evidence proving they work, a 2016 US study found. The study cast doubt on techniques used to match a bullet to a gun, footprint analysis, hair comparison, DNA analysis of mixed samples and bike mark analysis. Much of this evidence continues to be used in Australian courts. In 2016, a team of scientific advisors to the White House released a damning review of forensic science based on a review of more than 2,000 scientific papers. Five of the seven forensic disciplines they studied were not based on strong evidence they found. Most of the techniques are based on expert opinion rather than objective facts they found. In most cases, there were no studies showing the techniques worked. Some of the studies found specific disciplines did not work at all. Experts claimed for many years to be able to conclusively match a bite mark to a suspect's teeth. Yet when this was finally studied, it was discovered the examiners often could not tell if a mark came from teeth at all. TV shows like CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, often show scientists carefully matching tool marks on a bullet with the muzzle of the gun that fired it. Again, there is just not enough evidence to show this technique works. Fingerprint evidence has been recently shown to work but comes with an error rate of around 1%. Hair comparison has an error rate of 1 in 9. In the US, that finding has led to major changes in forensic systems Not so in Australia, some experts argue. There was a lot of lip service, says Australian forensic scientist Mark Reynolds, but if you want to be honest and courageous, there was no palpable change. Nothing has changed in my opinion, it has gone backwards. Dr Reynolds was in charge of scientific quality in the Western Australian Police Force's forensic team. He retired in 2017. Scientists are supposed to objectively study evidence, but most forensic scientists are police officers. The police hypothesis is to prove that a suspect did it, Dr Reynolds says. The underpinning ethos is mutually exclusive. Dr Reynolds, along with the Melbourne University Law School Associate, Professor Andrew Roberts, University of New South Wales Director of Forensic Psychology, Professor Richard Kemp, and Professor Gary Edman, who directs the university's legal evidence program, all said they had serious concerns about the state of forensic science in Australia. I think there is a significant potential for miscarriage of justice, Dr Roberts said. For most forensic disciplines, we just don't know how reliable they are, and that's a problem. We don't know error rates for techniques. We don't know how reliable, how competent the expert witness is. When forensic evidence is presented, courts and juries tend to believe it rather than question it, according to Professor Edmund. The forensic sciences have been treated as if they're all scientifically based, he said. Trials have not been fair. The value of evidence has been exaggerated.
0: This is not an isolated criticism of forensic evidence. There are many, many others. Too many to list, in fact. In July 2020, the following article appeared in the Australian Journal called Lawyer's Weekly. Nightmare of serious errors. How Australia's miscarriages of justice and wrongful convictions are crippling their criminal justice system. You will hear later in this chapter from an author who wrote a book about crucial errors in forensic cases. His name is Ted Dews. And wait till you hear what he has to say. The report covers two famous miscarriages of justice in Australia, Lindy Chamberlain and Andrew Mallard both of which we have previously covered. It also discusses the curious case of Nicola Gobbo, Lawyer X. This matter is now the subject of a Royal Commission into Victoria Police. And that is a very strange case because that is a criminal defence lawyer who was playing for both teams. There were several comments in the article we could not go past repeating here. The following matter was one we discussed in Chapter 3 of the podcast, Sliding Door Moments, and it may have been written with the Graham Stafford case in mind.
4: From that article, Here are some comments, read by a voice actor. According to forensic scientist and criminologist Dr Xanthi Mallet, anyone can be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and if the case is not investigated appropriately in the first instance, it is almost impossible to prove innocence in the next. Victims can spend years of their lives going through every level in the system and still come up short. And other
0: very significant comments in the report worthy of
4: repeating included... There are many core themes to a miscarriage of justice, financial disadvantages and lack of access, police officers getting tunnel vision due to either laziness or overzealous work, and experts making errors and sometimes refusing to admit them. Dr. Mallett wrote the book Reasonable Doubt to examine seven separate cases of miscarriages of justice. She now teaches truth, Justice and Criminology at the University of Newcastle to inform the next generation of legal professionals in criminal law. Her book provides a deep dive into Australia's flawed system and some of its victims. All cases in the book were really interesting cases. For each case that I choose, I could have chosen a hundred others that would have the same problems, and that is what I found really frightening. I wanted to choose the cases that were not necessarily well known because the point is, this can happen to anybody.
0: One branch of forensic evidence that evokes much criticism and debate is forensic entomology, the study of insects to determine time of death. And we have talked about this many times before. And the time of death in Leanne Holland's case is absolutely crucial to both the Crown, the prosecution, and the defence's case. As has been stated on a number of occasions, if Graeme Stafford did not murder Leanne Holland before 4.30pm on Monday, the 23rd of September 91, then he wasn't the killer. And a calculation of time of death using insects, or maggots as they were more commonly known, is reliant on such variables as, was the body clothed or unclothed, wrapped or unwrapped, exposed to the elements or indoors, contained in a boot, container or similar as claimed in the Holland murder, the ambient outside and inside temperatures at the time, and so on. It's just so fluid. And because of that, exact time of death is very difficult to determine. Most forensic entomologists prefer to provide a day of death rather than a time of death. Notwithstanding, Queensland police managed to conclude death occurred shortly after 10.15am on Monday the 23rd of September, ninety-one. We comment again that we have not read the report, but the scientific findings prior to the review state quite categorically that death occurred on Tuesday the 24th of September. In this chapter we are fortunate to speak with an expert who has a lot of experience with forensic evidence and the problems with it. This is Ted Dews. So, Ted, you are an author. You wrote several books. Uh, One book that I'm reading right now is actually called Crucial Errors. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to write that book?
2: Well, I was an economist um, for most of my working life, and I specialised in macroeconomics, which is and inexact science, and I soon found out that uh, macroeconomic theory worked for a period of time and then it seemed to fail right so I studied uh, uh, philosophy of science uh, which some people call epistemology and uh, when I got involved with criminology and I got involved with criminology because I was introduced to a case um, involving uh, Andrew Fitzherbert, who at that time was in jail for the murder of Kathleen Marshall. And I visited him on a number of occasions, and I quickly came to the conclusion that he was innocent of that particular crime. So I found that when I started to work in criminology, which is about solving murders uh, it, murders were all about theories, and therefore a philosophy of science approach which i'd adopted in my uh, macroeconomics career um, suited um, um, murder investigation and uh, that 's basically how I started uh, my crucial errors book uh, the the chapter on Andrew Fitzherbert was, in fact, the first chapter I wrote um, in that particular book. That was going back to 2008, just after I'd left university life. And uh, after I'd written that chapter, I thought, well, if the police investigators had made so many mistakes in that particular case, I wonder if there are other cases where they've also made mistakes. Sure. Uh, Mm-hmm. And that led me to look at the Leanne Holland uh, Graham Stafford case and uh, the Billy Shanks case and uh, a number of other cases, mostly Queensland cases, but um, also uh, involving cases from other states like the Lindy Chamberlain case, uh, Andrew Ballard case in Western Australia and so on. So that's how I came to start the Crucial Errors book. And uh, uh, I guess that's how I came to finish it.
0: (laughs) And you actually told me that what got you interested in crime and reporting and um, investigations was that you yourself and your family were subject to victims of a home invasion or robbery back in 2004 in your Brisbane home.
2: Yes, that sort of reinforced my view that investigating police weren't really properly trained to investigate a complex crime. So this goes back to 2004. Uh, I live in a uh, house at Sunnybank. It's a very modern house, uh, quite expensive. And at the time, my partner and her three children were living in the house. And my partner runs Japanese restaurants. So we had quite a big safe on the upper floor of the house. You couldn't see it from the street or anything like that. Um, and it was a very heavy safe. Uh, one strong man could not lift it. Okay. You have to have at least two uh, strong men. And uh, one night in 2004 in midwinter, it was in June, uh, my partner had gone to Taiwan and I was in the house, in and the three children of my partner were in other bedrooms of the house. So all of the bedrooms are en suites, so you don't sort of go out into the corridors of the house during the night because the bathrooms are attached to the bedrooms. Yeah. And when I got up in the morning, I found that uh, the safe was gone. Some Somebody had carried it down the stairs, and... Carried it out into the street into a getaway car. Uh, Lots of money had been stolen, Uh, computers had been stolen, mobile phones, and so forth. And then about a week later, um, a woman rang me from a neighbouring suburb and said she'd found some of my business documents in a creek bed um, about five kilometres away from the house. So I went out and I found that those were documents stolen from um, our house. They were my partner's business documents. And in those documents, there was several syringes and other drug materials. And when I took that to the police, they managed to get DNA from that, and it matched a a 28-year-old guy who had to break and enter a record as long as your arm. And subsequently, he was committed for trial on a number of cases, including the break and enter into uh, into our house, which the, the amount stolen was about $70,000.
0: Wow. You essentially did your own investigation then, talking to neighbours and following up leads, that sort of thing?
2: Yes, that's right. And I discovered that another uh, person in Sunnybank who lived about a kilometre away had also had a very big robbery on that same night and subsequently um, we found the getaway car it was abandoned at red bank plains and he and i went out to the getaway car and there were documents from his robbery and there were documents from my robbery in the car so
3: mm. uh, the guy who
2: committed the robbery at my place which we managed to uh, uh, calculate was about at 3 30 in the morning uh, had previously uh, robbed uh, this other guy's house and he'd lost thirty thousand dollars and as i said uh, we had lost about 70 thousand so it was a big night for 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 this particular robber yeah for sure and, and of course uh, the police said, look, you're not going to get anything back from this person um, because he's got no money. <laughs> mm. So we never found out what happened to all of the, the valuables that were stolen, uh, that were in the safe and so forth.
0: So tell me about forensic disciplines um, and some criminal cases where breaches of those disciplines or procedure have led to wrongful convictions and miscarriages of justice.
2: Well, in 2009, the American National Academy of Sciences published a book called Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States, A Path Forward. And they said at the time that forensic science in the United States lacked resources, it lacked sound policies, and it lacked national support mm-hmm. and and they listed a number of uh, forensic science disciplines like toxicology fingerprint analysis blood groups and dna analysis trace evidence and low copy dna uh, blood spatter analysis fire debris and arson uh, crime scene investigation including estimates of the time of death mm-hmm the integrity of the crime scene and the continued continuity of evidence and so forth. And they believed that the only forensic science discipline, which in the United States in 2009 could be given a pass mark, was in fact DNA. And even DNA has resulted in problems and misinformation, mostly because of human error. Yeah. And, and we've had cases like uh, Farajama case in Melbourne in 2006, where Farajama, a young 19-year-old Sudanese man, was convicted of rape when, in fact, there'd been no rape at all. And it turned out in that particular case that the analysis of his DNA had been conducted by the same medical practitioner, uh, who the previous night had conducted an analysis of a rape case. One case had been analysed on the Friday night and the other case on the Saturday night, and there was no cleaning over the weekend, and contamination from the Friday night case had somehow got into the analysis of the Saturday night case. Of course. And that became a very famous case. Mm. And Justice Vincent wrote up a very long report, I think it was about 83 pages, um, about that particular case. And that shook up not only the police investigation of uh, evidence, but also the forensic scientists' analysis of evidence. There's been a, a large number of cases Both in Australia and overseas, where there have been wrongful convictions which have resulted in miscarriages of justice.
0: Yeah. So I noticed in your book, you refer to possibly Australia's greatest known miscarriage of justice, the Lindy Chamberlain case. Yes. And you refer to the fact that it's similar to Graham Stafford and Leanne Holland's case because the tests they did initially to detect blood might not be as accurate as they seem on the face of it.
2: Yes. Well, uh, the forensic scientist in that case was Mrs. Joy Kuhl, cool, K-U-H-L, and she managed to get the Chamberlain's car, which was a Holden Torada, about a year after the first inquest, uh, which had been conducted by Coroner Barrett. Mm-hmm. And coroner Barrett had found that Azaria, the um, the baby, uh, had been attacked and carried off by a dingo. But popular presumption in the Northern Territory was that Azaria had been killed or sacrificed by her mother, and that Lindy Chamberlain had killed Azaria in the Chamberlain's car. Mm. So when Joy Cool was Investigating the Chamberlain car, she found a spray pattern on the passenger seat side, and she formed an opinion that that was caused by uh, a spray of blood. And she did a presumptive test for blood, and she got a positive reaction. And to Mrs. Cool, this was proof that Azaria had been killed in the passenger seat floor well and her blood had spurted onto the metal surface under the glove box. And the jury convicted Linda Chamberlain on that particular evidence. But Mrs. Cool had failed to appreciate what is called the theory dependence of observations. So Mrs. Cool had read the media reports that there might've been a murder in the car, and she expected a murder and when her presumptive test for for baby blood for fetal haemoglobin was positive, she linked them as cause and effect. Mm-hmm. But it was later shown that a sound deadening bitumous compound, which had been sprayed onto the outside wall of the passenger compartment of the car, and had passed through an interior uh, hole, that had caused the spray. Patton and other scientists pointed out that this compound, when it was laced with copper ore from the Chamberlain's hometown of Mount Isa, and there was a lot of copper ore dust of course. in the car, gave the same positive result to the tests that Mrs. Cool used. In other words, there was no baby blood in the Chamberlain car, right. and Mrs. Chamberlain was wrongly convicted on this so-called evidence.
0: I feel like it's worth just pausing here for a second. If you haven't heard of the Lindy Chamberlain case, I suggest you go and Google it right now. It's pretty crazy. Lindy Chamberlain, in 1980, was accused of murdering her nine-week-old baby, Azaria, in Uluru while she was camping. You've probably heard in the media the, the phrase, a dinko took my baby. Well, anyway, it's just dreadful. This case is so horrendous, it's hard to believe it actually happened.
1: And
4: that's
0: exactly what happened with um, Graham Stafford when, you know, the scientific officer went to the house and went to test all over the house, including Graham Stafford's car and the boot on the steering wheel. And all these initial tests were coming up positive to blood, but the jury never heard that.
2: Exactly right. Mm. Only Officer Crick, the scientific officer in the Leanne Holland case, he was using Sangu strips and. Um, He was surprised, I guess, when he got very strong positive reaction uh, on the Wednesday when the police investigation of the Leanne Holland case started. He got very strong positive reaction in the bathroom of the house at Alice Street where the uh, Holland family lived and Graham Stafford also lived with uh, Leanne's elder sister, Melissa, and also on the front steps of the house and also in the boot of Stafford's car. Mm. and And because he got all of these positive reactions and because he was part of the police investigation of a missing girl, a missing 12-year-old girl, which the police quickly assumed to be a case of uh, murder, mm. uh, he expected to get blood in the house. But he gave the other police the impression that there was a large amount of blood in the house when, in fact, there wasn't. Yes. And when the scientists uh, were brought in later, Leo Freni, who was the head of molecular biology from the John Tong Centre, and Professor Anthony Ansford, Um, and they examined the bathroom and the boot of the car, they said there wasn't enough blood in the bathroom to support the police theory that Stafford had bludgeoned Leanne to death in the bathroom. Mm. And and there were only a a few drops of blood in the boot of the car, and that blood was on movable items. Yes. And there wasn't enough blood in the boot of the car uh, to support the theory that Stafford had put Leanne Holland's body in the boot of the car late on the Monday and kept it there until the Wednesday morning before dumping it at the body dump site at Red Bank Plains in the bush. So Officer Crick was looking for evidence of blood, and he was expecting to find blood. So when the Sanger Streps gave a positive reaction, he mistakenly assumed that they were only caused by blood, mm-hmm. uh, whereas in fact there were oxidising chemicals, and rust and other types of uh, vegetation, even which, co- which could cause a positive reaction to the ox- uh, to the uh, sanger strips. Yes, a- and also uh, the the doors of the Alice Street house had been tested for fingerprints earlier on the wednesday before officer crick started using his sanguine strips to test for blood and certain chemicals used in the fingerprint tests uh, also could cause a positive reaction uh, to the sanguine strips so it was the same mistake that uh, mrs joy cool made in the chamberlain case and in, in science it's uh, called a sort of failure to understand the theory dependence of observations. And what about the Arnold and Leahy case? Uh, that's very interesting indeed, because as you know, Vicky Arnold and Julianne Leahy were killed at Atherton in August of 1991. Uh, so that, in time, that was very close to Leanne Holland's a murder because uh, Leanne disappeared on the 23rd of September in 1991. So there were both 1991 cases. Mm. And in the Arnold Lay case, um, uh, Julianne Lay's husband, Alan Lay, told police after the two women went missing um, one night in uh, August of 1991 that they had gone fishing in Tinaroo Dam. And the police said, well, that's a bit strange, isn't it, to, to go fishing at midnight? And Alan Lay said, oh, no. He said they often go fishing at midnight. So the whole police investigation of these two missing persons, they were only regarded as missing at this stage, was directed to Tinaroo Dam, which was about 15 kilometres uh, east of Atherton, but two weeks later, they, they, they found nothing at Tittery Dam. The police found nothing. But two weeks later, the car, um, uh, it was a four-wheel drive. I just can't recall the make. Uh, they found the, the four-wheel drive 15 kilometres west of Atherton, so the police had been sent in the wrong direction. And uh, when they found the car, the, the doors of the car were open, and uh, Julianne Lay in the driver's seat um, had been uh, strangled uh, with her seatbelt and had been shot twice in the head and had been beaten over her head with a rock and had her throat cut. And Vicky Arnold. In the passenger seat was holding the the murder weapon. This this was a sawn off, uh, 22, um, of 22 uh, gun. Uh, Vicky Arnold had been shot. Uh, first of all, they thought she'd been shot twice in the head, but they discovered a third bullet later, which had gone through her leg. And when the police uh, came. It was a Friday night. Um, I can't recall the exact date. In August, that they found the car, um, but they got there about 5:30 in the late afternoon. So it was only about 30 minutes before um, uh, night came. Um, but in that 30 minutes, uh, the senior police officer looked at the scene and he said this is a murder-suicide. So he concluded that Vicky Arnold had shot and killed Julianne Leigh, her friend, and then had uh, committed suicide by shooting herself. Mm. And that conclusion has never been uh, changed, although there's been um, several uh, inquests and uh, even state government reviews, I think two colonial inquests, two criminal justice commission inquiries. And even today, it's never been changed, mm. that that conclusion. The, the people of Atherton never believed it. They said uh, Vicky Arnold was, uh, was a very good friend of Julianne Lane mm. and would never kill her. And then in 2013, the Queensland Coroner Michael Barnes did a, another inquest, and he concluded that, um, on the evidence, it was a double murder, and the deaths had been caused by a third person. Mm. And uh, Alan Lay, the husband, was uh, was summoned to appear, and uh, before a uh, Supreme Court investigation in Cairns, um, but he was let off on a technicality, and he has since died, so the case sort of has ended, I guess. Um, but that is very similar to what happened in the um, in in the uh, Leon Holland case. So, if if you want to sum it up, you could say that. The investigators in both of those cases, the Arnold Lay case and the Leanne Holland case, were too quick to fix on or commit to a theory mm-hmm. explaining a crime, and they risked failing to see evidence that would disprove that crime. And they really distorted evidence that they did find to make it fit into the Framework of their favoured theory. Yes. So they wanted to uh, see the Arnold Lay cases of murder suicide, and they wanted to see the Leanne Holland case as a murder committed by uh, Graham Stafford. And uh, poor old Graham Stafford then got convicted on evidence which um, didn't really relate to him at all. Mm. It happened in the Leanne Holland case, but it wasn't quite as um, obvious and it wasn't quite as serious. But um, Dr. Rosemary Ashby, the pathologist who carried out the autopsy on Leanne's body, described Leanne as having, quote, a mass of curly auburn hair. Um, this was when uh, Dr. Ashby was called to the crime scene um, in the bush. Off Redbank Plains Road, and despite evidence to the contrary, uh, Dr. Ashby refused to accept that Leanne's hair had not been dyed. So this was important because the police had accused Stafford of lying Mm. when he when he claimed that he did not dye Leanne's hair, and Stafford's honesty became an issue at the trial. Yes, and also uh, Dr. Ashby supported. Uh, Scientific officer William Crick's claim um, that there was no odour from the boot of the car, the boot of Stafford's car. And Dr. Ashby said in support of that statement by William Crick that she would not expect an odour from a dead child aged 12. But other scientists contradicted that statement. Dr. Ansford, the pathologist, uh, said that there would be no difference in odours from a decomposing body uh, on the basis of age. Mm. So uh, wrong expert evidence uh, played a part, uh, uh, I think a serious part, in in the Stafford case, and I think contributed um, to the jury convicting Stafford uh, and sending him to jail.
0: Absolutely, that's a very good point. Again, thank you for your time and I really appreciate that, Ted.
2: Uh, You're very welcome. And uh, thank you for for producing uh, the podcast about uh, Stafford's, in my opinion, wrongful conviction.
0: Well, thank you. Forensic flaws result in miscarriages of justice. I googled common causes of wrongful convictions and this is what I found. Eyewitnesses Misidentification is the leading cause of wrongful convictions in the United States. Unvalidated forensic science, false confessions, jailhouse informant testimonies, police and prosecutors' misconduct, poor defence lawyering, systemic racism, and implicit bias. We count four of those points in the conviction of Graham Stafford. Eyewitness misidentification, unvalidated forensic science, police and prosecutor misconduct, and Poor defence lawyering. But of course, it goes further than that. Graham Stafford's conviction has been quashed, but the police say the forensic evidence is conclusive that he is the killer. But as you are aware, they refuse to show the forensic evidence. So that's it for Chapter 14, Forensic Flaws. And we'll let you make your own mind up as to whether it is safe. rely on an investigation based solely on forensic evidence. And you'll note we haven't even mentioned circumstantial evidence, for obvious reasons. If there is no other supporting evidence, it just becomes circumstantial. Join us next time for A Case for the Coroner, where we discuss compelling evidence that this case must be referred to the coroner. And also chapter 15, next chapter, will be the last regular episode of Who Killed Leanne Holland. Of course, if further avenues of investigation lead us down other paths, we will continue to do bonus episodes and keep you updated, but Chapter 15 will be the last regular episode. In saying that, if you have any questions for Graham Stafford, any questions at all, please send them through. We will put those questions to Graham Stafford and have him answer them in a bonus episode. Graham Stafford will also be explaining and discussing his call for the establishment of a Criminal Cases Review Commission. Who Killed Leanne Holland is a 610 Media production. This episode was written and fact-checked by Graham Crowley. It was recorded, edited, and theme song by Jamie Pultz. This episode was mixed, mastered, and additional editing by Alex Rodier at Paperbark Studios. The music for this episode was entirely produced by Bubba Beats, and you can find him on SoundCloud or Instagram or Spotify. Just look for at Bubba Beats. If you like any of the sounds that you hear and you are a podcaster looking to make a true crime podcast, then you can purchase his sounds or the links will be in the show notes. And a special thanks to my sister-in-law, Courtney, for drawing this chapter's cover art. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Who Killed Leanne Holland and also at 610 Media Group. Also head to our websites and you can read our blogs and see pictures at whokilledleanneholland.com and 610mediagroup.com. And please... If you're enjoying the show, share us with your friends and don't forget to rate and review us. It does help. And a special thanks to Yamaha Music Australia, Audio Technica Australia, Zoom Australia,
4: Isotope and Sound Theory.
2: ACAST powers the world's best
0: podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.